electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Power Lunch. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. Coming up, we are 52 weeks now away from next year's presidential election. We're going to look at the economic issues that matter most to voters and could determine the winter. Winner, it almost always comes down to the economy. Plus, consumer concerns, new data pointing to emerging and uh, painting a potentially troubling picture of the holiday shopping season. And we will take a look at some of these under-the-radar numbers. Kelly. First, let's get a check, though, on the markets, which started in the red, have turned into the green. And if the Nasdaq closes higher today, and it's got some room up 1%, it would be eight straight up sessions. It's getting a boost today from software names. Datadog posting better than expected results and raising its outlook. Other software names rising in sympathy. Datadog surging almost 30% today for a 40% year-to-date gain. Snow up 10, Mondo up 12, Atlassian up almost 4%. Chips also rising, Intel up 2% as it's close to officially getting government funding as part of the CHIPS Act. You can see those shares up 2% and 46% year-to-date now. There's also a few other reasons the stock is higher today and some signs it may finally be turning a corner. Christina Partsinevelis has that story. Christina? Well, thanks, Kelly. Well, the Commerce Department hasn't made any final decisions about CHIPS Act funding just yet, but allocation or money to Intel should not come as a surprise to investors given what the press around Intel's $43 billion promise to build on American soil, the fact that CEO Pat Gelsinger is very optimistic each time he talks about the CHIPS Act, and the public visit from the president at the plant in Ohio, which I was at maybe about a year ago. That same enthusiasm was also seen from companies like Wolfspeed and to a certain degree Micron and TSMC which could indicate that maybe these companies, they're so optimistic because they've received positive signals from the Commerce Department, maybe behind closed doors. But the CHIPS Act funding is largely considered priced into the stock. So today's bump also has a lot to do with Gelsinger's visit to Taiwan, his second actually this year. He said in a Intel Innovation Day over there, he said their most advanced chips, the 18A, will move to test production stages by Q1 of next year. This is important. Why? Because it's important to its founder business at Intel. Uh, they plan to make these more advanced chips not only for Intel but also for outside customers like Ericsson. Intel has already signed on three customers but as I tried to ask, tried to get the names but they're very hush-hush on those customers because those same customers most likely use competitor TSMC, so they don't want any conflict of interest. Intel's goal, though, is to catch up to TSMC as a chip manufacturer. But recall, just last month, Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, told the Chinese uh, paper, it's UCD.money, said that Intel isn't a threat and will remain in TSMC's shadow. But Intel's foundry business is part of Gelsinger's turnaround plan. Starting Q1 of next year, Intel will even start reporting it as a completely separate unit with its own profit and losses. And to come to full circle, Kelly, the biggest beneficiary of the CHIPS Act funding is going to be that foundry business because they are building American chips on American soil. I'm surprised this isn't already priced. I mean, you know, Intel shows have risen a lot this year on, on 
kind of the knowledge that a lot of this funding was coming, no? Precisely. That's what I'm saying. It's priced in. And you saw the reaction. Wall Street Journal reported it yesterday after hours. The stock went up about 1%. And then you saw it come down uh, early this morning uh, before 930. It was up maybe a half a percent. And then you saw these headlines with more details about the more advanced chips, the 18A for Intel. And that added a little bit more uh, positivity, I can say, to this 2% rise that we're seeing in Intel's price uh, today. But for the actual Chips Act funding, we're still waiting. We're waiting to find out when they're going to make this big announcement on who's going to be the first company to get some money. Indeed. Christina, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Christina Partsinevelis reporting. All right, now let's move to China and some very mixed data on trade. Exports falling there by more than 6% year over year in October, which was more than expected. But China's imports rose by 3% versus the period a year ago. This comes as China's President Xi is expected to meet with President Biden in San Francisco next week. Here with more on that and the state of China's economy is Sean Ryan, Managing Director of China Market Research Group. He joins us from China. Sean, always good to see you. I want to get to the export and import numbers in just a minute, but I want to go broader and more macro. You think that the economy is going to beat expectations in 2024 with a 5% or greater growth rate in China, going to beat this year 53 5.4%. But you also say uh, that wealthy consumer confidence is dying and real estate is collapsing. If those two things are true, how can you be confident that the economy is going to grow at the rate you say it is? It's great to be here, Ty. Yeah, it's sort of a mixed bag in China right now economically, and investors need to be very cautious. So the economy is bad still. It's bad since we spoke last June, uh, but it's not as bad as people think. Importantly, what we're starting to see is uh, multinationals are starting to invest in China again. I just met with the a iconic German brand, and they told me, Sean, 2023, we did not invest in China. We invested in India, but 2024 is the name of China. And the reason is because we don't think we're going to be able to see the growth in India, in Vietnam, in the United States, or anywhere that we can get into China. So I'm cautiously optimistic for 2024, Ty, because in the last four to six weeks, I'm seeing more and more multinational companies are planning to invest in China in 2024, I think defying a lot of market expectations. And that's off of a really bad year where FDI has already dropped 8% this year. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, that's but what, that's what right. I'm, I'm curious about. If FDI is off 8% this year and you say, or my notes report that you say, that multinationals are scared of China, worrying about getting arrested or complaining about difficulty in getting visas, how do you think uh, multinationals are going to be a comeback story in 2024? Yeah, so what's happened is when I talk with multinationals over the last two months, a lot are scared to actually come to China. Um, mm -hmm. I was supposed to kick off a meeting with one of my clients in December who canceled coming into China because they're scared about being arrested or they're scared um, about being able to secure a visa. I think there's a lot of sensationalism. The Wall Street Journal mm -hmm. has misreported that foreign executives are being arbitrarily detained. China's really safe. Let me be really clear, Ty. It's safer to walk the street of Beijing or Shanghai at night than it is New York City or San Francisco. So fears of people coming are sensationalized. But they're still there. But that's more from the American side. So when you talk to the Europeans, you talk to the South Koreans, you talk to the Japanese multinationals, they're planning to make a big comeback into China investing in 2024. But it's the American companies that are shying because of the U.S.-China political tension, mm -hmm. which is just getting worse and worse. As you and I have talked about, the Chinese feel that Biden is looking to contain China's economic growth. 
seen in the last two, three weeks, Biden has implemented more sanctions um, and more limits on American investment into China's technology sector and venture capital, and is preventing technology companies like Intel or NVIDIA from selling their top chips into the China market. So it's kind of a mixed bag. On the one hand, multinationals are coming back into the China, but on the other hand, there's still a lot of fears, and that's why real estate is bad, and that's why wealthy consumer income is dropping and their confidence is really bad. So I expect you know, in the next couple of weeks, the sales of Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Porsche, the companies that are selling to China's wealthy are going to hit a wall. Um, and so investors need to be very cautious about that. Very mixed bag. It's not easy to forecast what's happening right now. There were, you know, some Japanese nationals were detained in China. There were some uh, some people who worked at WPP, people who worked at the Mintz Group. Uh, it seems as though it's not just a made up story by The Wall Street Journal, Sean, but that there are people who are genuinely concerned about doing you know, being foreign nationals doing business in China. Well, you know, it is made up because I, I'm glad you brought up WPP. WPP actually hasn't even protected their employees because a large part of that actually has nothing to do with spying or national security, but pure corruption. It's well known in advertising businesses here that if a company pays, say, $100 million to WPP, they should be allocating that advertising budget to where they get the best return on investment for advertising. But what happens is a lot of the executives would get a kickback. So if you get a hundred million, the executives would get a one million or two million U.S. dollar kickback. So they weren't actually putting the advertising in the most effective means. It's they were getting wherever they could get a big commission. So I mean, don't you think that if they're breaking the law and they're misusing um, client money, that they should be investigated sure, and go to going, jail if they are found guilty. That would happen 20, in the United States, too. Going back to 2020, the U.S. warned citizens of arbitrary detention in China uh, due to what they said was arbitrary enforcement of local laws for purposes other than maintaining law and order. Yeah, I, look, look, like I said, I'm American. I love the United States. Kelly, you and I have talked. Maybe I'll run for Senate one day. Um, but I just don't trust anything under Blinken's uh, State Department. You know, they put a lot of things saying China's scary, China's not. It's 3 a.m. right now where I am. I'm happy to go outside, live stream with you and show you how safe it is right now. So China's perfectly safe for foreigners. July of 2020. Yeah, what I read. Obviously, Sean, we're not we're not really talking about street level um, uh, threats uh, here. We're talking about something of, of a different of a different quality and magnitude. But let me, since you just mentioned Secretary Blinken and you said, I don't believe anything that comes out of the Blinken State Department, you must have extremely low uh, expectations for next week's meeting between Joe Biden and Premier Xi, President Xi. I have very low expectations. I think it's great that Biden and Xi will meet. I'm a big believer in discussions, you know, like the United States and NATO should be talking with Putin and Zelensky. Um, You know, there should be talks between Hamas and Netanyahu in Israel. I think it's important that people talk. You're never going to be able to solve uh, problems, ease tension if you're just yelling at each other or launching sanctions or launching war. So I think it's a very good signal if she and Biden can actually meet that might lower down the temperature. But I don't expect anything meaningful to come from this. Um, She is still quite angry um, at the United States. And like I said, Biden has added more restrictions on venture capital investment, private equity investment into China uh, from the United States in the last couple of weeks. And that's why wealthy consumers here are so depressed, because they're the ones who are dealing more with international trade. Um, And so I don't expect any great revelations or any 
you know, detente coming from this meeting next week, Ty. Sean, always great to uh, hear from you. Always provocative. We appreciate your perspective. Sean Ryan, thanks. Now the import-export data out of China also impacting oil markets today as crude drops 4.5% now to about a two-and-a-half-month low. Pippa Stevens is here with the full story. Big move today. Yes, and so we have to look at the import-export data on an individual basis. So starting with the import data from China, it was about crude oil imports were about 13.5% higher year-over-year year and also higher month-over-month. Month. There was very strong demand at the beginning of October during the Golden Week holiday. We saw travel about 70% higher than last year and also above pre-pandemic levels in China. So that's the good side. However, exports actually slowed at a faster than expected rate, which points to weak demand in the rest of the world. So China has been importing a lot to then refine it and export products in order to take advantage of the different price between the price of oil itself and the elevated price of products. But now the product demand is slowing in other parts of the world. Those exports are now tapering. And so that's the fear here that if, if, if they're signaling their exports are down, it means that there's not as much demand in the rest of the world. So that is definitely having an impact today. But, you know, oil is down 4 percent at the lowest since July, also falling below its 200-day moving average for the first time since July. So it's not just that. It's also the factors that are impacting the rest of the, of the market, stronger dollar, the comments from Kashgari and whether or not the Fed is done with its hiking cycle, higher for longer, all of those things. But definitely seeing an impact and now more than reversing any gains we saw after the Israel and Gaza war began. What are, you, what are your sources telling you about whether this sort of decline in oil prices is an enduring one? In other words, that there is a new equilibrium price or whether it is a temporary decline? I think what we've seen since Russia's invasion is that there have been a lot of knee-jerk reactions in the oil market. So every time we get a new output cut from OPEC or a new threat to infrastructure or in specific oil-producing region, we see this knee-jerk reaction. And so far, those things have yet to materialize. Of course, oil went up to 130 after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it since has come down. Their ex exports are still strong. And so that narrative has not really played out. So I think increasingly, people, our traders are saying it's market participants who are not looking at oil fundamentals, who are maybe not as much in the know, who are the ones that are driving these reactions, particularly given that money had been on the sidelines for such a long time. So I think kind of what, what we've seen now is that we get these knee-jerk reactions, but that the fundamental levels are probably in that $75 to $85 region. Interesting. All right. Thanks, Pippa. Pippa Stevens. As always, coming up, the tech checklist. Does WeWork have a next act after filing for bankruptcy? Plus, surge pricing for Uber and OpenAI opening a store. We'll cover all of this when Power Lunch returns. CEOs are in the business of making decisions, and it's the outcome of those decisions that define their success. Hi, I'm Sam Reese, CEO of Vistage. For more than 65 years, we've engaged with more than 100,000 executives on this twisting leadership journey that we call a life of climb. Join me on Life of Climb podcast to hear firsthand stories from CEOs about the challenges they've overcome and the lessons they've learned along the way. Listen to a Life of Climb wherever you get your podcasts or at vistage.com slash podcast. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com slash meeting demand.
Welcome back. Is the WeWork saga finally coming to an end, or could it be a fresh beginning? They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy to reorganize the business, including cutting leases. Stock, of course, has fallen almost 99.8% since listing in October 2021. It was a $47 billion valuation at one point. Uh, now it has just about a $44 million market cap. Deirdre Bosa takes us inside that collapse in today's tech check. Deirdre, I don't know. I don't know if it's over yet. I I don't think it is. We'll get into that. But I mean, just a stunning, you outlined it, stunning rise and fall that was really indicative of venture capital throughout the 2010s in a ZERP era, a policy of zero interest rates, um, when everyone just clamored to get in from SoftBank to JP Morgan to even in traditional VCs like Benchmark. And they were willing to sustain billions and billions of dollars of losses while it reached that peak of $47 billion. It would crash down to be worth less than $3 billion and then what I think is just as stunning, guys, is that it was able to go public through a SPAC at a valuation of $9 billion. So in that way, the losses bled over not just to the institutional investors and the VCs, but to the ordinary investors who are going to be wiped out in this bankruptcy. As for what happens next, um, it's interesting because when you go back to the early days of WeWork, and I covered the company very closely, they really had a sense of community and they were doing something different. It all got out of hand um, through Newman and Sopping and the billions and billions of dollars in growth at all cost mentality. But if you strip it away and you don't try to say that this is a technology company, which it never was, and you try to operate it like a great real estate company, you use the bankruptcy to renegotiate or end leases. That could be an interesting proposition and one that, you know, Adam Newman himself may even be thinking about. According to that statement he released, what he said, he said, with the right strategy and team, a reorganization will enable WeWork to emerge successfully. So, I don't know, guys. Chapter 11, there may be more. Maybe yeah. another chapter. I think that Billy Joel, spack, 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 spack. You ought to know by now. But nobody seemed to know by now. I mean, the, uh, where does this money go, uh, Dee? Does it go to money heaven? <laughs> a lot of it. Some of the debt is going to be rolled over into equity, and there's going to be sort of a frenzy as to what happens to it now. But it's yeah. not going to be anywhere close to the more than, what is it, more than $16 billion at least that has been put into this thing over the years. Did I see a, a comment from Adam Newman about all this, Georgia, where he said it's hard to watch from the sidelines and they need yeah. some, something like, it almost sounded to me like the kind of comment where he said, you know, if only the right person were back at the helm. And uh, we've seen it before. We've seen, we've seen founders we go back. And that was, you know, think of the time that he was sort of thrown out of WeWork. That's when a lot of um, startup and some of the founders of the most disruptive companies, you think of Travis Kalanick, were pushed out or, you know, maybe deservedly so. I don't know. Um, but, you know, they wanted an adult in the room. They wanted the operators. And it turns out, at least in the case of WeWork, that the mm -hmm. operators weren't very good at managing this either. And so, yeah, that statement from Adam was pretty telling. He said that maybe with the right strategy and team, um, mm. it could emerge successfully. Let's Rise from the on. ashes. Let's on, move on to Uber, which has a story all its own. Gross bookings more than $35 billion in the third quarter. That's a, that's a big win there, Deirdre. It is. And you know what, Tyler? I harp a lot, and I have for years, on Uber's different measures of profitability. First, it was unit economics, and then it was adjusted EBITDA. But you know what? This is a quarter which really relied on the fundamental business operations. And guess what? It was profitable on a net income gap basis. So credit where credit is due. Um, that's a very interesting thing, and that could actually pave the way for it to be included in the S&P 500. All right.
Let's move on, shall we, to the kind of fascinating chapter here. Speaking of new starts or fresh beginnings, or I don't know what, OpenAI is launching custom versions of ChatGPT that can be tailored to specific apps, kind of like iOS or, or the Android platform. Deirdre, what do we know about this? Yeah, I think you summed it up really well, and that has what that is what has made Apple's iOS and Google's Android so successful into these walled gardens, these ecosystems. That's essentially what OpenAI tried to do yesterday at this developer event that some are saying, you know, reminded them of the old Apple iPhone events. This is new technology that's available right now, and it really got a lot of people excited. So what an app store looks like for an OpenAI or a ChatGPT, it's where you can find different GPTs, as they're calling it, and these are um, third-party basically smaller models that companies put into an app-like store that people can use right away. And it's so interesting. You've seen all these examples on Twitter today even of people experimenting you know, with them and showing what they can do. So in this way, it sort of gives us more applications, more use cases for ChatGPT and potentially puts them in more competition with the AI bot platforms, like the one that Meta is building or Character AI, which a lot of you know, young people are spending a lot of time on. All right. There we have it. Any other questions? No. Nope. The gambit. <laughs> Deirdre, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. Deirdre Bosa with Tech Check. All righty, further ahead, some cracks forming in the consumer ahead of this holiday season. Whether it's fears around spending or companies slowing down hiring, we will discuss that. Plus, speaking of spending, lots of people adopted pets during COVID, but as inflation climbs, those four-legged friends are costing them an arm and a leg in some cases. That story when Power Lunch returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Stocks are once again higher today, 68 points on the Dow right now. Let's get to the bond market, however. Yields there falling. Rick Santelli in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, Tyler. Indeed, if you had me blindfolded and only showed me the NASDAQ, which, of course, is leading the percentage move on the equity side up over 1%, I would have guessed it probably was lower interest rates. Look at a 24-hour chart of two-year and three-year notes together, short maturities. We had a rather successful beginning of $112 billion in supply with today's $48 billion three-year note auction. Look at the way the yields, in the middle of the chart, was the first low on that 24-hour chart. Look how it accelerated when we traded lower than that. But the real catalyst was the long end. Here is a two-day chart of 10s. On the far left side of the chart were basically the lows yesterday. You see what happened when we traded below them? A very simple technical feature. Investors always like to jump on those new extremes. And if you look at what's going on in Europe, well, the patterns between our tenure and their tenure on a year-to-date chart are almost identical. Believe me, conventional wisdom is that yields are moving down. And for the moment, they seem to be correct. But there's a couple things you better pay attention to. Obviously, one is debt. 
The second is the difference between U.S. and European yields. 200 basis points, as you see on that five-year chart, has been the latest extremes. The issue is that that particular chart looks more like a bottom than a top, which means that 10-year yields may outperform. If that's true, you want to pay very close attention if we get on a close above four and three quarters before we close below four and a half. Kelly, back to you. Great data points, Rick. Thank you very much. Over to Kate Rooney now for a CNBC News update. Kate? Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon. A Capitol Police spokesperson says a man arrested near Senate office buildings today had a rifle. Capitol Police say they arrested the man around one this afternoon in a park across from Union Station. They say they have no reason to believe there is an ongoing threat right now. The House will vote again today on two GOP resolutions to censure Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib. She's facing backlash for controversial remarks she made in response to the Israel-Hamas war, as well as for her participation in a rally. Tlaib, Tlaib, who is the sole Palestinian American in Congress, has defended her comments and actions. An historic hangar in Orange County, California, is on fire right now. Firefighters are waiting for it to fully collapse so they can safely go in and attack the flames. The mostly wooden landmark at the Tustin Air Base once housed blimps used in World War II, and it has been featured in TV shows and films, including Austin Powers and Star Trek. Kelly, back over to you. Wow, Kate, thank you very much, Kate Rooney. Still to come on Power Lunch, it's election day. And while there are a few key races to watch this year, the countdown is officially on for 2024. 52 weeks to go until the presidential election, and voters seem more torn and divided than ever before. We'll discuss what to expect in the year ahead and the fallout for markets when we return. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Today marks 52 weeks until the 2024 presidential election. The economy, always an important issue. And to get a read on what some voters are thinking ahead of that, we released a CNBC Generation Lab poll today called Money and Youth in the USA. It measures the opinions of 18 to 34-year-olds on the economy. And the results show widespread anxiety about their future well-being. Half surveyed said inflation is having a very negative impact on their finances. Mortgage prices and health care costs are also weighing on young voters. What does this tell us about the next election and the policy themes that will emerge going into that? Larry Sabato is a professor at the University of Virginia and director of the University Center for Politics. It's great to see you. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Power Lunch. Thank you so much. It's it's maybe early and maybe it's not because I mean what how far are we from the first uh, you know we're, we're just like a couple months and this this whole election cycle is going to be in really high gear and um, what do you think the main drivers are going to be in terms of where voters are going to lay their bets? Well, it's it's a year away essentially. I, I suppose voting starts some places in September, but nonetheless, uh, the economy uh, Biden must hope should improve. And if it does, Democratic chances will improve. If it doesn't, then Republican chances will be pretty good. Uh, of course, that will partly depend on who's the Republican nominee. But the, but the perceptions of the economy and the reality of the economy uh, don't seem to be aligning. I mean, there's, there's very strong GDP growth in the, in the U.S. economy right now. Inflation has fallen a, a lot. And yet the perception is that the economy is stalled, that uh, inflation, while it is still higher than, than obviously the Fed would like, that inflation is still a nagging concern here. Well, that's all true. But the studies on how voters interpret the economy have stressed for many years that inflation is usually the number one concern. It's not the only concern, but the average person doesn't relate to the GDP. 
the average person has a job. Most people in their family have a job. So the unemployment rate is less important than the particulars that you all have focused on, like mortgage rates and the cost of health care and what they see in the price of goods and services when they go to the store or get their car repaired. That's where the economy is failing younger people and middle class people who don't have a lot of extra cash. Yeah, the young people certainly express that with respect to inflation, as one might expect. They are the people who are just beginning their careers and may not have the kind of uh, cushions. I want to turn to a study that you at the Center for Politics put together. It is a poll, and some of the findings in it absolutely floored me. Uh, among them, uh, that a staggering majority of both Biden and Trump supporters believe that electing officials from the opposite party would result in lasting harm to the United States. About two in five of Trump supporters and one in three Biden supporters expressed the idea that succeeding from the U.S., was a was a was a reasonable approach to take and that democracy while they favored it a third of trump supporters and a quarter of biden supporters somewhat agree that democracy is no longer viable yeah it, it upset us us too i can guarantee you uh secession in particular but violence of any sort uh, in our system, while we have always had some, and it's true, we've had points in American history like the Civil War when it took over the system. But by and large, our disagreements have been peaceful. And we're seeing the two sides polarize, going to the ends of the spectrum, drifting apart and willing to consider uh, these horrible alternatives. And it's a warning to us to uh, lower our voices uh, to do something about our rhetoric, that is, use a milder word instead of a stronger word. And a lot of this is up to the candidates. They have to lead the way. And if you have a candidate as party nominee who's using extreme language and is heating people up rather than cooling people down, we've got an even bigger problem ahead. Yeah, it's always interesting to see the partisan divide and at the same time know that a lot of Obama voters, not a lot, but there were Obama voters who voted for Trump, who then voted for Biden. I mean, we still get these swing voters in every election and we'll see this time around as well. I'm just, Larry, thinking through a little bit of the investment implications here, and I think the bond market has really thrust itself onto the main stage. You know, no one's going to run on a campaign of cutting entitlements, um, but what shape will that narrative or discussion take in maybe the the one, two, five years to come, do you think? Well, you hope it's on the table for discussion. Uh, whenever it is, parties tend to use it simply to score political points instead of to deal with the problem. You know, that, that's a, one problem that never seems to get solved. Immigration is another because the parties would rather have it as an issue than to solve it and take it off the table. And, you know, I always hope uh, and my hope is forlorn, but I always <laughs> hope that a second term president will decide to devote the term to long term problems and will bring other people on board, at least a portion of the other party. Um, still waiting, but still hoping. But I'm in well, my 70s. One so of the candidates who wins next year is going to be a second term president. It's just <laughs> unclear which one. One of them will That's have right. the opportunity. If both if both get there and get the nominations, right. which I am yeah. not 100 percent certain is going to happen. I, I, I'll tell you that, you know, the, the, the upcoming ele election a year from now is important. But what is really important, Larry, is that a week ago, my son, Max, sent in his application to the University of Virginia. We've <laughs> known, we've known each other 50 years, so I can tell you that as a friend. <laughs> 
Well, you know, just send it to me. You know, I have a magic way with admissions. I'll send they it to Sabato. Let me they ask you. Always listen to me. I hope you don't believe that. <laughs> oh, I know. I want to ask you: In tonight's elections, is there any one or two that we should be looking for? I know Bashir in Kentucky, the gubernatorial race there. He's well liked, but Kentucky—it's not going to be a bellwether. Kentucky's not going to vote Democrat next year. That's for sure. Uh, and it's good to have elections that aren't bellwethers for the next year. You don't want everything to be partisan and predictable. Look, Bashir's problem is simply that Donald Trump carried it by between 25 and 26 percentage points. If he does win a second term, it's at least a small miracle. He's been leading the polls, but we all know how accurate polling is these days. So uh, if he can win that second term, it does suggest that people in at least one state are willing to consider the individuals, the characters, the issues, rather than putting everything in a national context. All right, Larry, good as always to see you. Really a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, my friend. And be sure to tune in to NBC tomorrow night for the next Republican presidential debate. Uh, Lester Holt and Kristen Welker of NBC News will be moderating. That begins at 8 p.m. Eastern. Very much looking forward to it. All right, coming up, consumer cracks, new data flashing warning signals about this holiday shopping season. We will drill down on the details when Power Lunch continues. Welcome back. New reports suggest that some cracks are forming in the consumer right as we head into the holiday. Two-thirds of U.S. consumers are worried about being financially stressed this holiday season, according to Bank of America. Gen Z and millennials, they are especially concerned. How about that? Uh, meantime, new data from Apollo show that retailers are hiring less this holiday season, which is generally done in October. Just 135,000 workers were hired this year, compared with 141,000 last year, 209,000 the year prior. And finally, FedEx encouraging pilots at its cargo airline to take jobs at regional passenger carriers for the holidays because, well, there isn't enough shipping demand to fill everyone's plane flying schedules. Frank Holland is here with more details for us. How bad is it, Frank? Tyler, it's bad. It's really? terrible. No. At least compared to the pandemic. Yeah. you got to remember, during the pandemic, we were all locked down. Just a record, unbelievable surge in, de in demand for goods. People wanted to buy things. And obviously, that's changed pretty dramatically. So you got to remember, just last week, we got a fresh read on the global shipping market. At the Evolve Summit, I spoke to FedEx CEO Raj Subramanian. He told us, basically, when it comes to the industrial market, it's soft right now. And even when it comes to consumer goods, it's pretty soft, even as we head into the holiday season. He laid out a pretty clear picture. I want to come back to that FedEx pilot's offer. Eye-popping, right? I mean, I'm going to show the numbers right now, but really eye-popping. So I'm, I'm looking at it. Has this ever happened before? You know what? I don't know if this has ever happened before, but I also want to uh, uh, amend something and tell her I'm not correcting you, just amending. No. It's not for the holidays. They're actually advising these pilots just to go take jobs. Go take jobs. Uh, permanently. Wow. What, does this mean that they're laying them off or are they saying take side gigs? Uh, no, it's it, leave FedEx. Leave and FedEx go over to and PSA. go to PSA. So FedEx and PSA. Well, PSA is a wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines. Hmm. So American and FedEx they have a very close relationship. I, I want to show the graphic right now of the offer from PSA Airlines. It's a regional commuter airline, again, fully owned by American Airlines. So you get a $250,000 signing bonus, eye-popping, obviously. Wow, yeah. $175,000 paid in your first paycheck. Wow. There's obviously some terms in here, but this is the general offer. 
12 days off per month and also longevity credit for vacation, retirement, et cetera, so which is important. you get almost half a million dollars just for walking in the door to be a pilot over there. Why, would they, why is this gift sitting out there for, for, for the offing? Well, here's the thing. At FedEx, they told us over a year ago they're cutting flights, they're cutting worker hours. Raj Subramanian, remember, famously right here on CNBC saying he saw a global economic slowdown. Since then, they've been pretty dramatically cutting their flights, cutting their worker hours, so none of this is a surprise. Also, another story you and I were talking about, uh, UPS pilots taking early retirement from UPS, almost 200 of them, actually a few more than UPS originally planned, but taking those early retirement offers, they're getting a similar offer from PSA Airlines. So there's obviously wow. two sides to this story. Demand for, for passenger flights up, demand for consumer goods down. I also want to show you the statement from the pilots union very quickly. I'm only going to read part of it. They say, we do not consider this an acceptable offer for FedEx pilots and our pilot membership reacted accordingly in messages that we've received. And they say, if FedEx is comfortable with pilots leaving, they should instruct their bargainers to make proposals to entice pilots who are otherwise waiting to retire, similar to UPS. Full circle, if you want to get a good picture of the demand picture when it comes to goods. Why isn't the union happy about So is it because well, if they leave... Doesn't that tell you how lucrative the jobs are at those two companies? So if the pilots leave FedEx to go to a regional airline, they get a half million dollars right off the bat almost in all these perks. But is the union basically saying they would get more if they stayed at FedEx and maybe reach full retirement there? Is that why they think this well, is a raw deal? These are these are jobs with great compensation, great benefits. FedEx is, of course, a, a, you know, a top-notch company to work for. This is a commuter airline. It's just a different schedule. It's a different lifestyle. Uh, PSA Airlines has hubs in, uh, I believe their main hub's in Charlotte, but they have also hubs in Philadelphia, a couple other cities around the country. It's just simply a different are they, job. Are, are the pilots at PSA represented by the same union as those at FedEx? We don't. I do not believe they're represented by the same union. That might be why the Right. People, True, that the, too. the heads of the FedEx right. union yeah. don't want them to Amazing leave. sign of the times. Right. Leave the package carrier and go to the domestic airline, you know, where everybody's traveling. Fully owned subsidiary of American Airlines. So, so it's not just, a, you know, a regional carrier. It is part of the American Airlines family, which is obviously a very big company. Um, but you were mentioning, how bad is it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we got some numbers out of China about imports. Mm -hmm. um, imports were actually up 3%, but we look at imports from the U.S., it was down almost 4%. So basically, just less things coming in and out of the U.S. For FedEx, for UPS, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the uh, UPS, the U.S. is still their home market, their core market. So just a general slowdown. But remember, it's off extreme highs due to a global event that disrupted everything. Yeah, amazing. Frank, thank you so huh? much for thank that you. reporting. Good Bring to see you to afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be back here tomorrow morning. Bye see you very soon. We'll yeah. see you then. Frank Holland. Still ahead, pet regret. With the cost of everything from their food to medicine now surging, are some pet owners starting to get buyer's remorse? We'll ask an industry insider when we return. All right, welcome back to Power Lunch. This one is for all the pet lovers out there. Uh, uh, strong demand has, lower, has led to soaring prices in Petland, and Rover is an online marketplace for pet care. The company matches pet owners with pet care providers who offer services including boarding and in-home pet sitting and dog walking and training and the whole thing. Joining us now is Aaron Easterly, CEO and co-founder of Rover. Is this, uh, w welcome Aaron, I'm, I'm curious, is this kind of a subscription model? In other words, do I sign up and then uh, pay per service or do I just like, as in the case of Uber, do I just say, hey, I need a pet walker three times today at my address in uh, Jersey City? Well, first, thanks for having me, Tyler. Uh, Rover is the world's largest pet market uh, marketplace for pet services. 
Um, we're generally a transactional model. So people will go to Rover and find an animal lover in their neighborhood when they're leaving town or they need a walker. Uh, we have some offerings that almost function as a subscription, but we're mostly transactional. So, and, and as you point out, you're international. I was amazed that you're, you're not, it's not just a U.S. company. You're all through Europe. Name some of the countries. <laughs> uh, France, U.K., Spain, Italy. Uh, we're in eight so, countries in Western Europe. What does it cost if I, if I have a dog, or I, let's say I have two dogs, and I need dog, dog walking twice a day for five days, and I want you to spend a little time with my dog because I'm going to be away. What does it cost? Uh, for dog walking, you know, $20, $25 per walk is typical. Drop-in visits, maybe a little bit less. For overnight services, uh, $35, $40, maybe more the norm. And do you, how do you vet the providers whom you hire to do these services uh, in, in pet care? In North America, all of our service providers go through a background check. Um, they have to fill out a profile. They go through a human and technical review before they're approved to appear on the website. Um, that process includes submitting references. Um, in uh, Europe, we actually do identity verification and go through a similar process as well. Um, mostly Rover is pet lovers. Um, people do Rover in addition to their primary income. So we attract people who love animals and would love to spend time with animals. Uh, for most people, it's not primary income. I see. What is, so we've talked about how much prices have gone up, Aaron, and, and how much more they can go up at this point, especially when a lot of pet owners, Gen Z, millennials, face some budget pressures with those student loan payments restarting and just in the surveys that we've been talking about on CNBC all day long. Uh, are you sensing any kind of tension out there about, you know, how much more people can pay for their pets? For our business, we're actually seeing record customer economics. So for the customers we acquired this year, they're performing at the best levels we've ever seen. Um, and that was on top of last year's record, which is on top of the prior year's record. Uh, so we're just seeing an up and up trajectory in terms of the spending and the customer economics. That being said, in the broader pet industry, we have seen some people talk about people being a little bit more uh, frugal, uh, but our business, we're actually seeing record levels of spend. You know, there's also not just one marketplace where you can find dog sitting. There's There's been others. And uh, it's fairly easy, I would have to imagine, for disruptors to try to come in on that turf. How do you maintain uh, your market share and, and grow it at a time like this? And, and especially in an era of higher interest rates may make it a little more difficult to invest and expand. Well, uh, we're fortunate in the sense that we're self-funded. We have a lot of cash in the bank, but we're also producing a good amount of cash. Um, we had a step function change in our profitability. Um, so when we look to expand, we're not dependent upon loans. We're not dependent upon new funding coming in. So that makes it easy. Our business has powerful network effects. Um, for the last 12 and a half years, we've been building a marketplace that makes extensive use of data science. So as we have more bookings come in, we get more data. We can do a better job of matching you with the perfect sitter. Um, and as we match you with someone better, you're more likely to use Rover and more likely to come back and more likely to recommend Rover to a friend. Um, and those powerful network effects are, are pretty uh, defensible and create a competitive advantage for us. All right. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Rover shares up 21 percent and more than doubled so far this year. Coming up, a tasty investment. Delivery startup Wonder getting a big cash infusion from a global food giant. We'll bring you the details next.
Welcome back. The latest venture from serial retail entrepreneur Mark Laurie is called Wonder. It, is it still a food delivery company? Uh, it's not quite a DoorDash or Uber Eats. CNBC.com retail reporter Melissa Repko is here with more. Some of us, Tyler and I, were fortunate yeah. enough to see those vans back when they Purple before trucks. they shut down that line of business. Yes, exactly. So back. what's now? So now they've pivoted to a different strategy. One is that they have brick-and-mortar locations. By the end of the year, they'll have 10 of them that are still doing delivery rather than the trucks where they were cooking meals outside of suburban households. But the other piece, and this is where they're getting uh, the money from Nestle for, the $100 million investment will go towards a B2B push. So they have proprietary kitchen technology, so think really fancy ovens, and they're going to be selling those to hospitals, hotels, even cruise lines or colleges. And Nestle is going to help them on the manufacturing side with making some of those prepared ingredients that it will sell as part of that package deal. What's buying Blue Apron? So Wonder is, has already announced that it struck a deal with Blue Apron, and really? that's a separate piece of it where it's trying to basically get more parts of meals. So on the one hand, you can order delivery from Wonder, but you can also soon, if the deal closes, which it's on track to do, get a, um, meal, get kit. a meal kit. Exactly. And I spoke to Mark Laurie, the CEO and founder of Wonder, and he was saying the idea is they want to become the super app of mealtime. So offer different options and people can do whatever fits within their budget, whatever fits within their flavor palette. They're kind of miniaturizing all these different restaurants into one tiny kitchen, simplifying the process. And also they see some, some opportunity here because of the labor shortage. What they've heard from Nestle is that a lot of these hotels and airports don't have people to cook in the kitchen. And so if you can simplify things into one oven, make it possible to make a steak, sauteed yeah. pasta with the push of a button, Potentially, there's so a market it's there. it's equipment and meals that they will be providing in this B2B thing. Melissa, we've exactly. got to leave it there. Yeah. You made me hungry. Thanks for watching <laughs> Power Lunch, everybody. CEOs are in the business of making decisions, and it's the outcome of those decisions that define their success. Hi, I'm Sam Reese, CEO of Vistage. For more than 65 years, we've engaged with more than 100,000 executives on this twisting leadership journey that we call a life of climb. Join me on Life of Climb podcast to hear firsthand stories from CEOs about the challenges they've overcome and the lessons they've learned along the way. Listen to a Life of Climb wherever you get your podcasts or at vistage.com slash podcast.